If you're listening to this on the audio feed, you might have noticed that this episode is a week delayed, but you can get early access to our episodes by becoming a paying member. The Genius of Charles Darwin was a 2008 TV documentary that I presented on Channel 4. It was the third of my series of Channel 4 documentaries directed by Russell Barnes. Among the people that I interviewed, one of the most impressive was Father George Coyne, astronomer. He'd been the director of the Vatican Observatory from 1978 to 2006. Unfortunately, the interview never made it into the final TV show. The director made the tough decision that there was too much overlap with my interview of the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. I found both men highly impressive and was sorry the interview with Father Coyne had to be left out. So I'm pleased to be able to introduce the whole uncut interview here. I think this interview is worth looking at to get a vivid picture of the difficulties we face when we try to have an intelligent conversation with a biblical creationist. Precisely because both these interviews are raw, uncut footage, please don't judge the camera work by the standards of a finished TV programme. Please enjoy the striking contrast between these two interviews. Father Coyne, this programme is directed towards the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth and the 150th of the Origin of Species. You've emerged as a sort of spokesman for a sort of one side in the Catholic Church on the evolution issue. It's, uh, as you've just told me, it's also a, an anniversary of, of Galileo. And it's only, it's quite recently that the Vatican has actually, in some sense, forgiven Galileo. It looked as though Pope John Paul was sort of thoroughly on board with, with Darwin. But are things backsliding a bit now? I don't think you can characterize it that way. First of all, anything that I've said publicly or in my writings is George Coyne speaking. Yes, of course. By the way, yes, please call me George. That's George. what my mother called me when I behaved myself. <laughs> I rigid. grew up not knowing my name. But no, I think you would characterize it wrongly by uh, thinking that I am a spokesman for the Catholic Church. Oh, no, I never one, said that. I, yeah. I said you were a spokesman for one yeah, strand of thought even, within the Catholic even Church. Not even that. I think I fit into one strand, but I have no official position. No, but no. mind you, that's not terribly important. It's what we think. Uh, and I think that's terribly important to recognize right at the beginning that the Catholic Church is often thought of as being very monolithic in its thinking. The point is there are very great divergences acceptable within the Catholic tradition. There is no Catholic point of view on many things. There are on many things, but on evolution, there is no what I would call official Catholic view. The uh, point I've taken in the recent debate is that sometimes churchmen present a view as if it were the official Catholic position, where it is not. And that view sometimes establishes kind of a conflict between religious doctrine, Catholic thinking, and modern uh, scientific uh, evolutionary theory. Okay. And uh, so I had to, uh, I felt an obligation in recent times to speak out as a, I was director of the Vatican Observatory at the time, so I had an official position. No, I've retired oh, as, of, as of a year ago. Okay. Um, could you then tell us what your own position as George Coyne is on evolution and intelligent design? Okay, my position is George Coyne, and I think it represents a significant number of Catholic scientists is the following, that the best scientific explanation we have of the origin of the universe 
and everything in the universe, including all living systems and ourselves, is by what I call neo-Darwinian evolution. And I think we all know what we mean by that. That is that the whole theory of Darwin modernized with genetic mutation, natural selection, and all of that, I think is the best scientific explanation we have of these origins that I spoke of. Well, I clearly agree with that. And I believe that uh, Pope John Paul II would have agreed with that as well. In that amount of detail, I couldn't say. I don't think he would have disagreed. He certainly said very officially in a very official document to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences that evolution is no longer a mere hypothesis, that from many of the scientific disciplines, it's now that what I call the best explanation we have. By the way, I use the word, and you tell me if you agree or not with me on this point, the best scientific explanation we have of the origins of the universe and everything in it. I avoid the word theory. Yes, me too. Because mm. certainly in American English, it, the theory gets the idea of it's only oh, a yes, theory. Yes. It's someone's idea yes. where it is the best scientific explanation. And it does not at all contrast with any Catholic teaching. Right. Okay. Uh, would the present Pope agree with that, do you think? I can't speak for him. I can only think uh, about him, and I would say he would agree with that. That as the best scientific explanation, it does not contrast with any doctrinal statements or theology of the Catholic Church. Right. I think he would agree yes. with that. Yes. But that wouldn't be the view of the Archbishop of Vienna with whom you've um, Well, it swords. wouldn't have been as of about... To my knowledge, as of about two days ago, I've just received a uh, pre-publication uh, book that has come out by Cardinal Schoenborn. It's the report, uh, well, it's, it's an anthology of a series of lectures he gave in Vienna subsequent to a bit of controversy that arise, arose from his New York Times uh, op-ed article. And the book is excellent. I think had he said this and not said what he did in the New York Times op-ed article, I would have no problem That's with very it. very interesting. So in, in what way does it differ from the New York Times? Well, he speaks of what I think essentially, you know, it's, it's very hard to characterize the whole book in a few words. But if I were, it would be he's very carefully distinguishes what he calls evolutionism from Evolution, he calls it a theory, so I'll use that word, the scientific theory of evolution. And what he means by that, and I agree with him totally on this, is to take the best scientific explanation we have and extend it beyond the science is what he calls evolutionism. That is to reduce, for instance, to reduce the human being to a material object in the universe and fail to recognize that from other disciplines outside of science, there is a much richer, if I can use that word, richer view of the human endeavor. That is religion, culture in general, literature, poetry. I mean, the human being is not made of just what scientists discover the human being is made of. Scientists in the very strict methodology of science. The human being is more than what uh, methodologically science can discover. If we're talking about poetry, which you've just mentioned, then there is a sense in which 
anybody would have to accept that that's true. However, there are many scientists who would say that there's nothing actually supernatural in the human makeup. Poetry is something which emerges from brain stuff in a way that we certainly don't understand in any detail. But I think they'd probably want, I certainly would want to make a distinction between acknowledging that on the one hand and trying to bring in something supernatural on the other. The idea of bringing in something supernatural, I think, is a caricaturization of what religious faith is all about. A scientist or any other human being can accept or deny the supernatural. But what you cannot do is on scientific, strictly methodological scientific grounds, deny the supernatural. No, I think I agree you can't actually deny it, but isn't it then part of a very large population of things that you can't deny for which there's no positive evidence? I mean, you can't deny fairies at the bottom of the garden, but neither of us take it seriously. Uh, so Positive evidence is a key word here, I yes. think. But is there any? Oh, there sorely is okay. positive evidence okay. for the supernatural, but it, trans it goes outside the scientific endeavor because the scientific endeavor, by its methodology, is limited to explaining natural events by natural causes. Or if you wish, I, I don't like to use the word material, but we can use it in this context, material events that we observe by material causes. And it's limited to that, but it is limited to that. But you've used so, the word evidence. Um, what sort of evidence are you speaking of? Well, I'm speaking of the whole traditions from, oh, at least uh, 2,000 years before Christ up until modern times, but the whole of uh, Judaic Christian uh, of Islamic literature, of church traditions that have been passed on since the founding of the church, etc. They are all well-established human endeavors. Now, you can examine those and accept them, or you can examine them and reject them, but they have to be examined. They are clear evidence outside of science. I mean, they're not tricks. Somebody is not tricking us into they're, believing well, in the supernatural. No, but they're, they're evidence that in these traditions people thought certain things, but that doesn't mean that what they thought was right. It's hardly evidence just that people for 2,000 years have thought something. Is that it? is correct. That is correct. But if I examine what they've thought over this long period of times, I find that I can, without divorcing my whole rational structure, I can accept that. I do not find that I, as a person and as a scientist, am sort of schizophrenic. That is, I'm being strict about my scientific methodology, but I'm sort of being, I'm being juvenile. I'm being non-rational. I'm being non-inquisitive when I accept scriptures and church tradition and all that comes with them. I think it's coherent. Yes. You mentioned both the Christian tradition and the Islamic tradition. These are not the same. Buddhist. No, uh, yes. So how do you decide which one? I mean, you're a Catholic priest. Um, why light upon that tradition rather than any of these other ancient traditions? It's because traditions? of my history. All of us have our personal history, which we struggle with. I mean, I grew up in a very Catholic family. Okay. Does that mean that I've been duped? 
I grew up in a Catholic family. I went to Catholic schools. I questioned it, went through the traditional juvenile rejection of this, rejection of that. I grew up as an adult. I studied uh, science. And I found through the long, my own personal history, and I think this reflects many, many us believing scientists, through my own personal history, I found not only was there an inconsistency, but there was a coherence. But if you had been brought up in an Islamic country, you'd be, be a Muslim, therefore? Probably so. I mean, we're all, we are all um, subject to our personal histories. I, I can't well, deny Well, we clearly it. are, but doesn't that undermine your feeling that, of validity of the one you just happen to have been born into? No, because it's my, this is a faith statement now. It's my firm belief that God deals with each of us in his own way. So the, that, the Muslims' beliefs which contradict yours are equally valid in his personal history and therefore That's equally valid? That's a very valid. challenging question. I would say there are um, ingredients of God's speaking to the Muslim tradition, to the Buddhist tradition, to the Catholic tradition. There are elements of God's true revelation to these people in all of those traditions. Uh, each of us wants to make our own claims I think it's always wrong for any of the traditions to claim that they have the absolute truth, that they are the ones that God really speaks to. I don't think, I think that's a caricature of what happens, but it has happened in history, of yeah. course. We have to face that. Why don't you accept those things which are universal, like the existence of God? Uh, what, why do you, in, in addition, accept those things which would be contradicted by these other traditions, like the, I don't know, whether the virgin birth or, or some, some part of the Catholic tradition, which, which is particular to the Catholic tradition? Because be, besides, you know, believing in the existence of God, I firmly believe that God has spoken in a very special way. Okay, through the Jewish tradition up until the birth of his own son, I firmly believe that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, sent to us by God to save us. That's all my religious tradition, and I find that that is not incoherent with my life in general, and certainly not incoherent with my scientific pursuits. No, not with that, but with, but with the possibility that you might have been brought up in a different tradition and would believe something that really did contradict it. Yes, okay, we're speaking now, if I could, uh, you know, sort of broaden the discussion, we're speaking about a very short period of human history, much less an extremely short period of cosmic history. Indeed, yes. So if we're, we're living in a universe that's 14 billion years old, a human civilization, how, how far back will we date just the first human being? Uh, oh. Uh, some but, fraction but, of a million years? Yes, I mean, but that, that, you wouldn't want to call that civilization. No. And then, you know, religious history, certainly Judeo-Christian tradition from, I would say, roughly 2,000 years before Christ. up in, These are very short periods of time. Who knows in the whole kind of more cosmic universal view of things that the religious traditions will not eventually unify. Well, maybe. This, the sort of paltriness of this human timescale compared to the timescale that you as a distinguished astronomer are used to dealing with and I as a biologist am used to, to dealing with, doesn't that seem rather small? Don't, don't you feel there's a kind of grandeur about the universe which the re religious traditions you're talking about fail to do justice to? Richard, I would firmly agree with you that many times we do not 
appreciate the fact that our religious traditions are very small in time. I expect also in space, though I, you know, I'm not yes. going to speak as to whether yes. they're extraterrestrials. Let's leave that. But certainly from, from all we know thus far, probably very limited in space. And we don't appreciate that enough. I must tell you that I often tell my fellow colleagues in the pursuit of our religious pilgrimage within Catholicism, in particular Christianity in more general, and the Judaic uh, Christian tradition more generally, often tell them, do you realize that I firmly believe that God spoke to us? So, of course, we are limited in space and time and religious tradition even more so. I often have to remind religious believers, especially in my own religious tradition, that we believe that God through scripture is speaking to us, the inspiration of scripture. What that exactly means is far too difficult to, to get into. I mean, I have my own reason, but I do believe that God is speaking through us, to us through scripture and through the traditions of the church. But the point is God is speaking to us. So we have to interpret the authors of, the, of Scripture are human beings who lived in different cultures over a long period of time. For instance, the book of Genesis, rather clearly established now, is written by many authors over a long period of time. There are two creation stories that contrast, if you try to interpret them literally and scientifically, contrast with one another. Point is that all that we believe are human beliefs, and we have to accept that. We have to accept the limitations of it. We have to accept what I would call the fallibility of it. It's not absolute final truth that we have. And much less if we talk about extraterrestrials or so, people yeah. say, I say, well, I don't know whether God spoke to them, if they exist, and if he did what he said. All I know is what God said to us. What do you say to fellow Christians who take the book of Genesis literally and Adam and Eve and, and six days and things like that? Um, I say as little as I have to because I, I tend to get very upset by it. Any literalist, fundamentalist interpretation of Scripture because it reveals a very fundamental ignorance of what Scripture is all about and what, let me put it this way, Scripture was written between, let's say, 5,000 years at least the traditions back to the prophet Abraham, the patriarchs, until about 200 years after Christ, which is the gospel of St. John. That's the span of the Judaic Christian scriptures. Modern science came to be in roughly, you know, in the 17th century with Galileo on through Leibniz and Newton. There is no science in scripture that can't be because of that conflict of dates, but they had no curiosity about how old was the universe, how did various things come to be. In fact, the stylistic view of the Genesis accounts of the creation of the world and everything in it, the style shows very clearly that they were trying to establish a kind of poetic structure to say that God was the source of all things. And that's why they, he did it in six days. And that's why if you interpret it scientifically, you get all screwed up yes. because light came on the first day, but the sun and the moon yeah. on the fourth day. Yeah. Well, the reason light had to come on the first day is because you had to have a day structure. And that's why at the end of each day of creation, and there was night and there was day. That's a poetic expression that God this was a structured kind of thing. Each thing in the universe had a very special 
uh, God had a very special affection for it. In other words, it's, it's a literary style in order to teach something that is true but is not scientific. So that's why I get upset. But if the book of Genesis was written by fallible humans who didn't really know anything, in what sense is it God speaking to us? That's a very, that's a very good question. We really truly believe that God, working through these various cultures, that these writers were inspired to give the foundations for a religious tradition. What that inspiration means, what it doesn't mean, is God was not dictating to these people. That's clearly absurd to think that. But they were people of faith and a deep religious tradition, and that God was really working with them, okay, through their faith in creating a literature that would be um, foundational for future religious belief. I mean... To go into it in more detail, I'm afraid I studied it about uh, 45 years or 50 years ago, so I could not recreate. Let's switch to another another topic. The statement by Pope John Paul II in 1996, could you tell me a bit more about that? Well, that statement truly came at a very epical time. It was a statement made, as best I recall it, the message was given to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences on the occasion of a very significant meeting on what it was called as origins. And there were people from from America, from NASA, there were eminent scientists there discussing evolutionary theory, uh, expansion of the universe, etc. It was a scientific gathering, and the Pope addressed them. So you have to see the background as being very significant. These, this was an eminent group of international scientists gathered to discuss these very important scientific questions. On that occasion, the Pope wished to make it clear that after all this period of time, and especially the transition from Pope uh, Pius XII, who had said in Humani Generis, I'm not quoting exactly, but that uh, evolution is one of several possibilities for explaining. Whether he was right or wrong in saying that, I'm not judging, but he said it back maybe uh, two or three decades before 1996 when we knew less. But we knew quite, quite a bit about evolution even in that time. At any rate, John Paul II wished to update us, frankly, to put it in a very succinct way. He wanted to update the church's view of what scientists had accomplished. And he made it clear, very clear because he cited several of the scientific disciplines. He said the point is there's a convergence here to this best scientific explanation, the theory of evolution. There's a convergence among many very significant disciplines, geology, paleontology, molecular biology, cosmology, astrophysics, that they all converge with many differences because we're still, as all of us will admit, you know, our pilgrimage is one of people that are ignorant and hopefully growing less ignorant as we learn more. But that The best scientific explanation from all of these disciplines together was evolution. And I think it was a very significant statement. Me too. It came too late. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Richard. My reaction as a believing Catholic and scientist was, so what? We've known this for 50 years, that this is the best scientific explanation. Yes. I really honestly agree with that. So what? Because many times the church... For, for, for very good reasons, I'm not faulting the church, mind you, but for very good reasons, it trails behind in making a declaration like this. It yes. trails behind by too long a period of time in absorbing 
scientific culture and then judging it and speaking out on it, Juno? Some might say that to call it the best scientific explanation is too restrictive, that, that it, what he was in effect saying is that the scientific explanation is the best explanation. Yes, I think that's correct is the best explanation, but from within a scientific methodology, because he immediately goes on to talking about the philosophical and theological yes. implications in all of this. And we, and we talked about that. Uh, many of us will diverge on when you get to that stage. Yes. yes. What do you think is the appeal of the idea of intelligent design or creationism? Well, it follows upon this very last point that we're making, the distinction between a scientific methodology and the philosophical, theological implications, which you cannot deny that we human beings are kind of driven either to deny or to assert that there are philosophical and theological implications from our scientific results. What intelligent design, and I speak from a very American point of view, because I think at least in its origins, it's a very kind of American uh, phenomenon. In fact, I call it the intelligent design movement. And what it is, it's a mistaken attempt to try and use science to establish the, um, what I call the implications of science that is going beyond science to the philosophical theological interpretation. So what intelligent design does, it begins with biology and I'm not a biologist, so you correct me, but they offer various possibilities, you know, blood clotting system in the human being. Um, and various Well, they're effectively looking as, for gaps that in, in, in present scientific correct. understanding, yeah. they say that there point are point to be irreducibly plant. complex biological systems, and you can explain that better than I can, that cannot be explained within the scientific method and require an intelligent designer. And in every case that they have suggested... And Ken Miller has, as you know, analyzed each of these cases, and you have, I'm sure, too. But Ken Miller, within the Catholic tradition, as a biologist, simply says, none of it holds up. We can explain it if you carefully examine what evolution does. You can explain this. Evolution is creative. It uses an organism, you know, that pre-existed the current irreducibly complex organism, as they call it. It takes this organism, which had a, a one function before, and it integrates it into another function. Evolution is very creative that way. Well, the fault of intelligent design, the fundamental fault, is that it steps outside scientific methodology and will not acknowledge it's doing it. It's a religious movement. It clearly is intrinsically judged. And in the judicial system in the United States, whenever it's come before a court, it's been judged such and therefore cannot be taught in the public school system in the United States because it's a religious movement. The other, I'd like to say, I think, absurdity of intelligent design is in its attempt to bring God into the picture, it creates, and I really mean creates a God. It's not the God I believe in. It's a God who's a designer. I mean, you know, I've been to, you know, the Milan in Italy, one of the great capitals of designing, you know, fashion clothes and all. Uh, we design cars. We design everything. The God I believe in is not that kind of designer, uh, an engineer or someone that has to be continually, you know, sort of touching up the universe because it's not running the way he wanted it to run, he or she. I think it not only it does it 
not admit that it's stepping outside of science. When it steps into religion, it's really, uh, it's an absurd intelligent design appears to religious people is because of what I've said before. They look upon God as a God of explanation. And to have a, a, a God who, who designed all this is clearly something that they would want. Because if God did not design it, who did? And the answer scientifically, of course, is nobody. Nature, if you want, because as we know very well, there is, if you want, a certain intrinsic destiny in the evolutionary process, right? Through survival of the fittest and through uh, chemical complexity, a more complex chemical. Its future is more determined than a less complex chemical. Of course, there's decomposition and all, but apparently in the universe, there was a kind of what I call an intrinsic destiny to the whole thing. That's why we came about. That's why more complicated, more complex biological and chemical organisms come about, because there is a natural intrinsic destiny. But this does not mean that somebody made it that way, that there's an intelligent designer. Religious thinkers always want to have God in the picture. And God does not want to be in the picture. He wants to be the source of it all and can continuing to sustain it all. But let it happen. That's why my view of God. Would you say that, that although God didn't design living things, that maybe he designed the laws of physics in the first place or that something like that? I would say, first of all, in very general terms, from my religious faith and my scientific knowledge, God works through evolution. God not only is the source of all being, that is, I don't know if we want to get into a discussion of what it means that God created the universe, but I believe that God created the universe, okay? But not that was not a moment, just a moment in time. God is continuously creating the universe, and he's working with the universe as we know the universe scientifically, if I'm faithful to what I know as a scientist, I reflect back upon the God I believe in. And I said, this God is marvelous. He created a universe that shares in his own dynamism and creativity through the evolutionary process. That is, he's not dominating the universe. He's not an autocrat. He's not a watchmaker. He's none of this. He's a God who created a universe he loves and gave to that universe a creativity and a dynamism of its own. If it's sort of running itself and evolution's running itself, doesn't that leave God with rather little to do? And might you, mightn't he not be, um, as it were, disappearing altogether if you don't let him interfere in the way that you don't? Oh, I won't let him interfere. I don't think God <laughs> would want to interfere, even with we invited him to. But God sustains everything that's happening in existence. And now this is philosophy. This is not science, I admit it, you know. But from philosophical considerations of reasoning human being, some of us reason one way, some of another would say that everything I know in the universe is contingent. That is, that it doesn't have to exist. In fact, I know it exists for a while and then it goes out of existence. And I reason like Aristotle did in St. Thomas Aquinas. If there's something that moves, someone had to move it. Well, if someone moved it, someone had to move them to move it. And I can go all the way back. Well, it would be irrational to say there's not a prime mover. I mean, there has to be someone who started this process. So with existence and with motion and everything else, philosophically considering it, there has to be a necessary being. Now, mind you, I'm reasoning to what I call the God of the philosophers. Now, that happens to be, I think, the God of faith also. But it's not adequate. The God of the philosophers is not adequate to me because it's not a God who loves. It's a God who explains certain things that I notice about creation, its contingency and all. 
Prime Mover is a failure. I mean, it's almost like just the first domino to fall and then everything else. That that's doesn't correct. sound like a very godlike attribute. But it's, that's what I just said. That's why it's not the God. It's not, it's the not satisfying to God you. is not satisfying at all. It's the God who revealed himself, as we were saying before in Scripture, the God who got angry, the God who loved, the God who said to the people of, of ancient Israel, you know, you turn against me, you rebel against me, and yet I love you and I will continue to love you uh, through all the... The, the ages, through Abraham and the prophets and all. That's the God of religious faith. There are people in your own field of cosmology who will say something like the fundamental constants of the universe of physics are too good to be true. They're fine-tuned. If they were a tiny bit different, the universe wouldn't have the properties it does and stars wouldn't have come into existence if the gravitational constant was wrong, etc. We wouldn't be here. And they, inv or some, some physicists invoke God to explain the fine-tuning of the universe. That's more than just a prime mover. That's a designer, isn't it? That's somebody that who actually twiddled the knobs. Richard, we're going a little bit afield here, but I think it's a good way to go afield. Um, this is, to me, the great God of the gaps. That is what, what is called the anthropic principle is what we're talking about, right? I don't think it's either a principle. Well, it's anthropic. What we do as scientists, we observe that the universe is made in this way. And if we changed any one of a series of 20 constants, you know, the, the Planck constant, the velocity of light, the mass of the proton, the mass, if we changed any one of those by a little amount, we wouldn't be here. And that's scientifically um, acceptable, you know, that we would not be here unless all these constants had the value they had and the laws of nature were the way they were. If the mass of the proton to the mass of the electron differed by just a little bit, we would not be here because the sun, okay, would not have lived long enough for life to have originated on a planet like the Earth. There are all kinds of these arguments. How does a scientist confront them? To me, it's a scientific problem. It's a scientific observation that does not yet have a scientific answer. But to bring in God to explain this, to me, is the great God of the gaps. Because first of all, why do you bring in God? This is a scientific issue. Okay, God has no place in trying to resolve this, honestly. And if you bring him in, again, we get back to the intelligent design movement. You bring in a God who kind of at the beginning was making a big bowl of soup, the world, and he tuned it all up. He put a little salt and a little pepper. He added a little celery to make it just right so that human beings would come to be. That, to me, is a real absurdity to imagine a creator that would have kind of fine-tuned the universe in that way. I just don't accept that from either a religious or a scientific point of view. One of the explanations is this multi-universe theory. But again, you get into all kinds of um, methodological considerations there. But it's being proposed more and more seriously, you know, that the explanation is there are many, if not an infinite number, this um, idea that, you know, everything is fine-tuned so that human beings would come to be does not have a scientific explanation. It hangs there as an issue that we try to resolve. One suggestion is this multiverse, that is, that there are many universes. And one can imagine how this happened from the Big Bang. There was an inflationary period where little pockets expanded at greater than the velocity of light. Because there was no matter, so the space-time framework could expand greater than the velocity of light. And as it did, then it braked. And so we have these many pockets that we call universes. So the whole thing is a multiverse. And now you can imagine that there are a large number, if not an infinite number. And that's imaginable. 
whether it's scientifically verifiable is another point. And so in each one of these universes, you have a different series of constants. It's like rolling the balls around in a lottery. You come up with a different series of numbers each time. But if you do enough of them, then you come up with the series of numbers that we have in our universe. Unfortunately. We have to be in one of those universes that's capable of giving rise to us. Yes. That's correct. We, yes. it's that, that's sort of a tautology that we have to be there. My problem with that, but, you know, this is, it's, it's more a, a concern about methodology. Since these universes were created or came to be in this inflationary multiverse, they are further away from one another than light can travel in the whole age of our universe. That is, we cannot communicate. So we can know nothing about them. So that's not verifiable or falsifiable to follow the tradition of falsifiability. Therefore, it's not science to me. Yes. But there are some people who are, including some eminent scientists, not George Ellis, Martin Rees, mm. people like this are discussing this multiverse theory yes. in a very serious scientific way. So who am well, I to... I've been extremely interested in hearing all that you've said, and, it, and I, I agree with so much of it. It sounds as though you don't want to use any kind of uh, scientific argument which smells of gaps, that you, you don't That's want to have correct. anything to do with that. I agree thoroughly. And I suppose my position would be that historically, the evidence for the existence of God or gods was always almost exactly what you're now rejecting. I mean, people looked around them, they saw the universe, they saw life, and they thought there had to be a designer. And many people still do that. And you've rightly said what? Historically, that's the way it was. And I suppose Darwin wasn't the only executioner of that way of looking at it, but he was perhaps the most important one. To me, that had the effect of what I call raising my consciousness as to the power of science to explain how big, complicated things, things that seem to require a special explanation, can actually happen by simple means from simple beginnings. And that makes me feel it doesn't disprove the existence of God, but it makes God seem increasingly superfluous. And having shown how superfluous any kind of design explanation is for just the reasons you've said, it makes me feel, what's the point of believing in God at all? And, and uh, I, well, all right, I mean, I'll stop there and, and see what you say about that. Well, I'm going to jump off the deep end and say, I will accept in the way in which you presented it, the God in whom I believe is superfluous. That is, I do not need God. That the God in whom I believe is a God who gave himself superfluously. Whether I needed him or not, that in my religious tradition, in my firm, deep down within me belief, God gave himself to me. And he gave himself. It's his love for me. We can only experience here on the surface of the earth the love between human beings. And sometimes that becomes extremely precious and very, very important, the love between two human beings or many human beings. God's love transcends that many times over. This is religious faith, Richard. And I can't pretend that I can prove it to anyone because if I did, it would not be religious faith. There's an element in me and in human culture in general, okay, that says, if I believe in God, because God gave himself to me, then the way I think is very different than the way someone who doesn't believe in God thinks. I admit it's an if, but I will not accept that I'm being duped. I will accept that it's superfluous in the sense contrary to what many Catholics do, they look to God as a source of explanation. 
In fact, I have many Catholic friends. I, I preach to them. I talk to them who pray that we scientists will not find certain explanations so that they can fill them with God. They really have that mentality. Well, to me, that's absurd. I mean, God gave us brains and means of thinking in order that we could explore the universe and find answers to the questions we have. God is not a God of explanation, primarily. He's a God of love. And consequently, I would accept that God is superfluous if I'm looking for a God to explain things. I don't need God. In fact, if God is a God of need, it's not God. Because he transcends our needs. He gave himself um, superfluously, gratuitously. I didn't reason my way to God. I didn't, you know, work my way to God. I didn't earn this faith that I have. And this faith is nothing other than God himself. Now, I'm getting very preachy, I must admit. You're being totally fascinating, I assure you. Uh, it's, it's a whole other dimension of human life. It certainly is for me. And I'm afraid it's not shared by a lot of religious believers. They really are subject to the very criticism you're making, that science has come to explain so much that why can't we simply accept that if we work hard enough, science is going to explain everything, and therefore God is superfluous. Well, I don't know about the science end of that. I have a slight suspicion that we'll never explain everything, because if we didn't, then I'm out of a job, and so are you. <laughs> so we... But I do uh, criticize those who um, will, from two ends, I'd criticize you in the um, sort of uh, idea that God is superfluous because we seem to be getting to a point where we can explain it all. Things that we needed God to explain time ago, we've now found an explanation for, okay? Your famous book on the rainbow, you know? What, what did you call it? The, unweaving. Uh, unweaving the rainbow. It's magnificent. And it does away with God to explain the rainbow. We don't need God to explain the rainbow. All we need is uh, know what a spectrum is. <laughs> but the point is, in the end, I also, as a scientist, I'm foisting a little bit upon you, but as a scientist, I do believe, even in scientific research, we're participating in mystery that will never have the final answer. That it's always yes. drawing us on like I a witch. I suspect that may be right. I'm, I, in I, a way, I'm equally excited by the thought that we, we'll never have the final answer and the possibility that we will. I mean, I think both, both yeah. thoughts are equally enthralling. Yeah, to, to keep going on, we have to think that we will yes. have the final answer, yes. right? Yes. But on the other hand, you're correct. There's this tension. We will because, you know, we're working so hard. I take it, it's, it would seem to follow from what you've just been saying, that you don't need God for explanation, that you, sh you don't believe in miracles. Mm. Do you have any easy questions? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it wouldn't, uh, wouldn't something like uh, the, the virgin birth be pretty counter to the, uh, to the spirit of what you've just been saying so eloquently? Was, again, my general background to trying to give an answer would be the following, and I'll stutter over miracles. I really will. I have to admit it. I'm not embarrassed by them, but I will stutter about them. It was God's free way, again, of dealing with us. He freely, okay, uh, in his own, uh, his own way of thinking, decided to save us because we, we were sinners, original sin and all this, and he decided to save us in this way and sent his only begotten son born of a virgin. I don't see that that is inconsistent with my scientific approach to things, that God, well, I'll use the word, can intervene in his creation. I would not want God, God please, to do this too often. 
But I can believe that he can do it in his own, and he hasn't done it too often. Most of the miracles that, you know, I've read about or heard about, I don't believe in because I believe they're superfluous. And to, to come back to the whole other word, a lot of the medical miracles and all of this, I simply don't believe that God is always doing this. Which one? Just name one that you really do believe in then. The virgin birth, the resurrection. Okay. Um, don't push me. <laughs> that, that, I mean, that does seem really seriously <coughs> inconsistent with the wonderful things you were saying earlier. It seems to be so... It does. ...petty in a, in a way. It does. But from my religious faith, it's based upon, and I must say, you know, it, it, it puts me in an embarrassing position as a scientist. But nonetheless, I can say that I'm consistent with myself by accepting that God is a God of love who loves in this way. And he's done this because he loved us, wanted to save us. I think we'd both agree that one of the great virtues of science is it's universal. And Japanese science is not different from American science, etc. Right. But yet, when you, when I asked you about the virgin birth, and you said it's part of the tradition in which you were brought up, uh, and you'd earlier agreed that had you been born a Muslim, you would have had a different tradition. So had you been born a Muslim, you would believe in, I don't know, Mohammed's winged horse or, or whatever, which I take it you don't believe in. How can you reconcile that with being a scientist? The only thing I can say to that is what I said before, is that over a short period of time, these various religious traditions seem to diverge. I yes. think over a long time. But I mean, period. either Jesus was born of a virgin or he wasn't. Either Mohammed had a winged horse or not. That's not going to change. Correct. When, How do you judge yeah. the veracity of this? I, all I can say is within a faith tradition. That is, yeah. I have to deny that some of the things that Muslims believe, I do not believe. Some of the things I believe... They do not believe. And, you, and, and if but you had I been raised Muslim, you would not believe in the I virgin birth. I firmly believe that that's correct. Okay. Yeah, for that period of time. Well, for all My time. believing or not in the virgin birth does not make it true or not. It's no. true or not, irrespective of my belief. Yes, yes. By the way, I, uh, if I may say a little bit of a side, these different religious traditions, I once had a conversation, a close friend, Carl Sagan, and I, uh, similar to this, and I told him that my faith was a gift from God. And he said, George, how come you got the gift and I didn't? <laughs> well, how do you answer that? Well, I mean, you it, either it, got it and you don't know it yet, or you will get it. Yes. Because God loves all his children. But that's an aside. You said that within the Catholic Church, there are many different strands of thought and you represent only yourself. There are some of your colleagues who seem to be rather attracted to the idea of intelligent design. Do you have some ideas about why they are? Well, I would say, first of all, that uh, Catholic thinking is never monolithic. There are vast divergences among the more intelligent, the less intelligent of, of believing Catholics. So it's a widespread. Statistically, I think the Catholic Church, uh, the thinking within the Catholic Church is more inclined to accepting evolution and accepting it enthusiastically. It's not part of what I would call a more fundamentalist movement within American uh, religions, where uh, evolution is looked upon as necessarily being atheistic, and consequently it's kind of shunned. I think the Catholics who don't want to accept scientific evolution are those who don't quite understand what it's all about. They do believe that um, since we came from apes, we're apes, that they're reducing us to just being our antecedents in this evolutionary process, and that's why they reject it. The official church, I think, has matured very much on this, as we were talking about since the time of John Paul II, and maturing even more. There's a lot of ignorance. 
because churchmen do not always express themselves very clearly. I've heard churchmen say that they believe in evolution, but evolution is God's way of bringing life into being, bringing humanity into being. Well, many churchmen want to cling on to God despite <laughs> everything else. My own view of that would be very clearly the following. If I believe in God, for the many reasons that we've talked about, but it's a big if. I don't expect everybody to do so. If I believe in God and I know the way the universe is, then I reflect upon the God who I believe created the universe. And I said, marvelous that God created the universe to be the way it is. Namely, it's an evolutionary universe. It has a dynamism. It has a, a, a creativity all its own. In fact, I, I once challenged a theology a bit by saying, the following. And I've been criticized for it, but I have to explain myself to the people that criticize me. I said, if God were limited to being imminent in the universe, limited to that, it's an if for sake of argument, would God have known a few million, a few billion years after the Big Bang and knowing all the laws of physics, etc., could he have predicted that life would come to be? And my answer is to be faithful to what I know as a scientist. My answer is no. God could not know what's not knowable. Life was not destined to be in the sense of necessarily come to be, I don't think, from evolutionary theory. I mean, the, the, the combination of chance and necessary processes in a very fertile universe that I've talked about many times, there were chance processes. We could have come to be or not come to be. We could have arms that come off our belly button and our backs because of you know, chance processes could have made that differently. The theological answer, of course, is in Christian faith, God is transcendent. God is outside time. All events are simultaneous to God. Of course, he would know. But my point was to limit God to being in the universe in order to emphasize the very nature of the chance processes working in the universe as we know it scientifically. And I think we have to accept that. As you've just told us, uh, Pope John Paul II said that evolution was the best scientific explanation. I would say that the best explanation is the scientific explanation. It's the best scientific explanation, but I would insist that science is not everything. We can take scientific results and give a philosophical, a theological interpretation to them in many different ways. I would say it's, I would not say it's the only explanation. I said, it's not that science just provides sort of the, the feeding ground for philosophy and theology, but ph philosophers and theologians do uh, think about, in a much broader context, the results of science in the question, in the question of evolution. Because we have come from apes, if that's true, and that would have to, of course, as you know very well, be more specified. But let's say we've come from apes. That does not make me an ape. I mean that evolution is very creative and brings about and has brought about a human being that is not reducible to its antecedents. It's not reducible to its It's the whole scientific idea of self-organization bringing about ever more complex chemical biological systems. A philosophical reflection upon that would say we finally came to a complex biological chemical system, the human being, that is more than just the organization of the chemicals and the biology. It has what in religious traditions you would say spirit or soul. But that would take us into a theological discourse that I'm not capable of following.
But do, do you think then that the soul entered at some point in evolution, Australopithecus, Homo erectus? Is, is it that kind of question? I don't believe in the soul. I mean, if it's a question of belief, I don't believe this idea of at some time in the evolutionary process, God put a soul I think into a certain John Paul II implied that that is what well, happened. Well, Catholic tradition can be interpreted that way, but it's certainly not, um, it's not a doctrine that I have to believe and I don't believe. Okay. I, I simply think that at best, I like to think about, as Teilhard de Chardin did, about the spirit emerging in this whole evolutionary process, that the whole process is continuous, and that from the material evolution, the, the spirit arose, however we define the spirit. It came through the evolutionary process. And God, of course, is working with it all along, so I'm not taking God out of the process. In fact, I'm putting him more into it than a God who sort of puts his finger at a magic moment into this evolutionary process. But you do think it arose during... The, there must have been a, yeah. an, an animal it's, that didn't have a soul and then a, and a subsequent animal yes, that but did. as all of evolution, as you know better than I do, Richard, all of evolution is continuous. The passage yes. from inorganic to organic, from vegetable to animal, from one kind of animal to another. We can't decide when this little fish became a reptile, no, can we? No, indeed. So no. it's the same yeah. with the rest of yes. this process. But if you believe that the soul survives death, then, then you would probably oh, say... Oh, no. I believe I survive death. Now, the mystery of that, I don't believe my soul does. I do. But do you I mean, in the afterlife, I surely want to have a gin and tonic and play some tennis. <laughs> but how, how that's going to happen, I, it's a mystery. But, but, but do you believe chimpanzees survive death? No. And, or, and, and no. so, the, nor the no. common ancestor. Yeah. Not necessarily. I can't say no. they don't. But so there must I believe have been a, I do. the first animal in evolution that's, that survived its own death. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. We always have to ask that question of, was there a first? And yeah, we have to say there was a first, but we don't know when, how, okay. and the whole evolutionary process. You know better than I do the continuity of the whole oh, process. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have said that evolution in my personal history, and you've stressed personal history, in my personal history, it was my understanding of evolution that led me to atheism. Because of that consciousness-raising thing I, I mentioned right. earlier, I take it you don't agree with that. No, absolutely. <laughs> Obviously, I do not agree with that. Far from it. In fact, I think evolution drives me to a more confident and meaningful belief in God, to a theism. But it's not an ism. I mean, God is a person, so I hate to put the ism on it, but it's just the opposite of driving me to atheism. It's just the opposite. And the reason is, I repeat what we shared before, that God is not a God of explanation. If I were seeking for a God of explanation for evolution, I'd probably be an atheist because I can perfectly well explain all that I know so far, and I hope into the future to you know, explain it with science. So if I'm, all I'm looking for is explanation, I'd be driven to atheism. I agree. Well, we're very similar because, of course, I was looking for When I believed in God, it was precisely a God of explanation that I was looking for. And so when I realized that he wasn't an explanation, I lost my faith in him. And so we're left with your faith coming from your tradition from your family upbringing, which sounds to me pretty weak, actually. Oh, I don't pretend it's strong. It's strong for me, but I can't give it a firm, completely rational explanation or it wouldn't be faith. Yes. So it's faith and you can't question faith. That is correct. I cannot. No. It's too deep inside me. Thank you very much indeed. This it was, was a, a fascinating conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, you can show some support by leaving a review.